Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show with some smart-ass New York Jew. And the Jew laughed at Lester Maddox. And the audience laughed at Lester Maddox, too. Well, he may be a fool, but he's our fool. And if they think they're better than him, they're wrong. Only one man has ever been described uh, by a Randy Newman musical persona as a smart-ass New York Jew and then by Mel Brooks as spectacularly Gentile. And that is because Dick Cavett, our guest today, is a many-splendored thing. Uh, he is protean. He contains multitudes. Uh, he is with us today partly to receive the 2016 Spirit of Catherine Hepburn Award, a not incidental award for him. He actually knew Catherine Hepburn uh, pretty well and had chances to interview her on this show that was kind of the show that you did. If you didn't do interviews with anybody else, you would still do this one. Catherine Hepburn was notoriously tough to pin down about such things. Dick Cavett, welcome to uh, the show. I'm so honored to be speaking to you. Well, I'm a little puzzled as to whether it be to be Jew or Gentile here after the first part of your introduction. <laughs> but, uh, it's a subject that's come up before. In fact, I just happened to tweet. No, I don't tweet. I Facebooked about it today because my Dick Cavett's Watergate special brought the unwelcome shade of Richard Nixon into my life again. And uh, I mentioned on it that whenever I feel a little blue, I go to... YouTube and find Nixon's secret revenge on Dick Cavett show and Google it. And there he sits with his lick spittle, H.R. Haldeman, saying, Cavett, there must be some so way we can screw, screw it. Screw him, yeah. And, and I have a hearty laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and actually, ominously after that, Haldeman or somebody says, that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, I think the line on, from the tapes is uh, that's on the screen, too, there is... Uh, We've, we've complained bitter about the Cavett show. We, and then he's interrupted by the great unindicted co-conspirator. Did you feel as though there, I mean, I don't know, did you get audited? I mean, did you, sometimes when Nixon had enemies, you knew it, you know? I mean, they would, in fact, try to screw you in some way. Well, yeah, the Yorba Linda wonder exercised one of his hobbies, which was to illegally use the IRS to punish people. But all he could come up with since I was always audited, was to audit my staff. Ooh. And I only found out about it about a year later when one of the staff members, there were two women, and one of them said to the other, hello, I was audited. And she said, so was I. When was yours? And they put two pieces together, and it turns out that my whole staff was. So Nixon could take pleasure in hurting people who don't make a great deal of money. But, oh, the reason this came up was a Jew and Gentile. Mm -hmm. One guy called me and said, is there anything in your heart that feels in some way sorry for Nixon? And I said, well, in a way there is. The poor man died without the answer to his urgent question, is Cavett a Jew? 
<laughs> well, Mel Brooks could have straightened him out. I mean, he did call you spectacularly Gentile, right? Yeah, that was the day we met, and he was dubious. <laughs> this is that was from, my partner on the Ballantine beer commercials, which are have a life of their own to this day. Yeah, so you, this was sort of during the height of uh, Brooks and Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner wasn't doing this. Talk about big shoes to step into. Carl Reiner, possibly the greatest straight man who ever lived. And, and they told you basically to try to throw Brooks off balance, right, to, to hit him yeah, with something. Yeah, it was all ad lib. That's yeah. the only way Mel will work. And a talent scout from the ad agency for the Ballantine beer commercials came down and saw me at the bitter end in my early nightclub days, and I was heckled, and so my ad-libs with the heckler convinced her that I was the one to work with Mel, and it was great fun. God, I, I don't know if those original unedited tapes exist, but they were a gold mine of stuff. I know that somebody wrote uh, to the company saying that he resented having to buy so much crappy beer uh, in order to keep the commercials on the air. Yeah, well, it was more a poetic wording. It was, we love the commercials, but the beer tastes like piss. <laughs> so that's a tremendous, you know, compliment, really, that someone would drink bad beer, yeah. just to keep your artistry alive. And that came from a member of the British royal family, but I probably shouldn't <laughs> mention this. You and Mel Brooks have kept this uh, friendship going for a long time. I love the way the HBO special begins. I think Mel Brooks looks at you and he goes, I feel like a leopard on a branch in the jungle, and you're a rabbit coming by. Uh. <laughs> what a memory you have. <laughs> yeah, I, I warned the viewers if they tune in the Watergate show that it might not be as funny as Mel Brooks and Dick Cavett together again was, that Nixon and Cavett together again would not probably reach that level of hilarity. No, it's a terrific uh, conversation, and you can, you can s- sense the uh, affection. And, you know, he's just amazing. I don't know, how, is he 90 now? And he just has not lost anything. You know, I'm trying to think. I, I thought Mel said on that show, which may not have been in the final cut, which he made of it, uh, and I asked him his age, and he said, I'm 82, I thought. Mm-hmm. And it so, seems I've seen that he's 86 now, mm-hmm. but that's that's close. The thing that I love is that he and Reiner get together uh, every day when they can, and he says, uh, I saw an interview where he said they... He said they watch movies and they don't care if there are movies that they've already seen because they don't remember what happens. Um, yes, God. Well, actually, my wife, Martha, one night we were there doing this show, that show with Mel, said, did you know that your wife is quoted in an article I read, Mel, um, that whenever I heard his key in the door coming home, I knew that the party was about to begin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, saw, I remember that quote from your, yeah. your piece about, it, about him in that, the Times. That's approximately it. Yeah. So we're talking to, to Dick Cavett. We've got clips from the show that we want to play as we go along here, including ones that do involve uh, Mel Brooks and, for that matter, uh, Catherine Hepburn. But I wanted to ask you, as you look at the TV landscape these days, do you see yourself at all? Do you see the work that you did reflected in things that are on the air now? Or is there sort of nothing like what the Dick Cavett show was? Well, that's a bit complicated for me because of who I am. Right. <laughs> you know, what I what interests me right now is the fact that um, that it's so well known around that mm-hmm. decades is rerunning my old shows. In fact, there's one up with Danny Kay and uh, Julie Newmar and uh, the great Doctor DeBakey, the heart doctor. And of course, that now that one was done in 1968 or nine. 
So I don't remember one word of it. <laughs> I only remember something Miss Newmar tried to do to me later that night, but um, but unfortunately it was in public, so it had to be uh, cut off, so to speak. <laughs> Dreadful choice of words. We'll, we'll just let the public think about that. But, geez, it was... Uh, I, you know, I didn't know they had started rerunning the shows and they run them four times a day, mm-hmm. usually at eight in the morning, two in the afternoon, eight in the evening, and two the next morning. So tons of people are, I'm wondering if more people are seeing them now than did before. It's a strange sensation to leave your house and have somebody come up and say, you were great last night with Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> and it's a young person who maybe <laughs> thinks the show was just done and, and had to look up, of course, who Jimmy Hoffa and I were. Well, I think there's nothing like the show right now, and probably if there's anything like the show, oddly enough, it's, it might even be on public radio instead. I mean, one of the things that you did was to assume that people were capable of reacting with both humor and seriousness at the same time, reacting to a host who had intellectual heft but also was very funny, and that people would sort of sit still for a long-form interview that might range across a terrain of different subjects. And I'm not sure there really is anything quite like this. I mean, a show where on any given night, you know, politics and, and literature and art and philosophy would all come tumbling around together for 90 minutes. Well, people keep saying to me, nobody's on for more than seven minutes anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I honestly can say that at first, the assumption being that you have a very good, interesting guest person and can fulfill with them Jack Parr's edict, kid, don't do interviews. That's Q&A and what's your favorite color and David Frost asleep over his clipboard with jet lag, make it a conversation. And I realize that's the key. That's when it's going best. I think in some ways the people who came before you have more in common with you than the people who came after. Although I feel as though Stephen Colbert, in exactly the right format, could do a Cavett-type show. Absolutely. In fact, I was somebody pointed out that I said that more than a year ago in, I think, either one of my New York Times online blogs or a printed interview with somebody that we have a man here who will master hasn't doesn't have to master it he knows how to do it already could do heavier or funnier or more interesting or whatever pieces of length and brilliance and being informed and having wit I think it's important for people who maybe haven't heard the show, although who would that be, just to hear a little bit of this and a little bit of maybe what Jack Parr is talking about, too. Don't do an interview. Have a conversation. This is you talking to Richard Burton or maybe letting Richard Burton say what he needs to say. And there's every conceivable excuse. Take a drink. I got a bad note, so I take a drink. I got a good note, so I take a drink. Mm-hmm. As to a, one would if um, if you didn't have... Uh, my particular self-control and, of course, mm-hmm. the enormous assistance of my wife. Yeah. Um, without, uh, without Susan, I think, uh, uh, without any um, exagger- exaggeration whatsoever, I, I might very easily be dead. I'm, I'm not yeah. joking, I mean that. Yeah. When I played Equus in New York four years ago, it was the first time in my life I'd ever been on the stage without a drink. And I shook, and I shivered, and she knew, Susan knew, 
and I had, as you know, an enormous success in that. And um, the audiences were fantastically kind, and they gave me standing ovations and all that. But every night, we never knew if I'd crack. Mm-hmm. Now, this is—I think your original question was: Would you talk about booze for a moment? The fact that he felt comfortable saying that much. I'm not even sure I can imagine a circumstance under which a public figure on a TV show today would say what you hear him say there. I know. Well, those shows came about strangely. He said he might do it. He would (laughs) like me to come backstage at Camelot and meet me and speak with me. And I did. And he said, I I suppose I will do the show, but I'd rather not have an audience. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, it works best with an audience, but here's what we'll do. We'll have an audience. And if they make you uncomfortable at all, right at the beginning, we'll claim that a technical fritz-up has happened, and we'll send them out and do it the other way. Well, the first laugh he got, he he did not want the audience to leave. It was only supposed to be one half hour. I managed to get a second, and then another, and then another, and stupidly (laughs) didn't say, Richard, let's do one more and we'll have a week. But that one was in the last of the four And I don't know if I'd have said it any earlier, but we got on such a good footing, and I thought, this could be valuable. Well, as you know, it's a good bit longer than that bit you played, and Mm -hmm. it's about five or six minutes. It's worth going to if you or any of your friends are drunks. (laughs) Um, It was... It was ordered up, or people pled. Well, every organi- alcohol organization in the country, it seemed, upon seeing it, said, "Can we get a copy of this?" And it has saved people. I've heard from. He was just vivid and riveting in it when he said that I know what you're going through, and I know what it's like when it's always three o'clock in the morning. And if you, um, it's just a stunning bit. It's actually, I think it's on YouTube, not only in the Burton interviews, but separately as Richard Burton talks about alcohol. So many people have seen it more than once, and everybody should. Listening to you do interviews, it's so clear that you have multiple agendas. You know, I mean, you're a little bit of a thief in the night in that Janet Malcolm sense, right? You're trying maybe to get inside the circle of somebody like Richard Burton and see if you can get him to say things that he hadn't planned to say. On the other hand, you're also trying to facilitate just a general genial conversation, particularly in situations where you've got multiple guests. And then other times, it seems almost as though chaos is going to unfold and you're just going to sort of stand back and let it unfold. Did you know every night, like, okay, okay, I'm going to go out there with guest X or guests X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to try to make this happen. Did you have a plan going out? I think I I can't remember any particular instances where I thought I'm going to try to goad this person into something they might not ordinarily do in order to make exciting. And will we ever get that word out of the, our vocabularies and show business? Exciting uh, moment in the show. I have to say that I think most of them came spontaneously, mm. having gauged what footing I was on with the person at that time. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't trade anything for the night when I said, and this DVD is in one of my boxed sets. I think it's the one called Hollywood Greats with Betty Davis and Hepburn and Wells and Burton and everybody. I said to her, as it was going well, a 90-minute show with her, and 10 minutes in, I said, this is fun, Betty, but why are you doing this? You're notorious for not liking this kind of thing 
And she said something to the effect of, but, well, yes, but you're a gentleman, Richard, and I know I'm in good hands. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that the only thing I could have said then, or you would have said then, was, so how'd you lose your virginity, Betty? <laughs> and, um, and she, of course, said, I'll tell you. And, and she does. But also, part of temptation at that time was knowing that somebody you're talking to hates somebody else in the business who isn't there, or in politics, mm -hmm. or in sports. And you can't resist the temptation of giving them a chance to have to say something nice about them. <laughs> and I used to enjoy that. But again, with the great Betty Davis, it was, I thought, I got to say something corresponding to the virginity thing that happened so well the last time she was on. So uh, I, I'm going to give you her reading now and the exact timing of how it went when I gave her the opportunity to say something about a colleague. Mm -hmm. So Betty, Who's the worst pig you ever worked with in the movies? Miriam Hopkins. <laughs> Do you want to Something think about like it, Betty? Do you want to think it over first? Uh... Yeah. <laughs> we rephrase that a little. And she went on to say why and what an ungenerous person she was, actress she was. I think the, uh, the... How, how refreshing yes. to not get... Well, yes, of the lovely people in this business. <laughs> yes, he wasn't going to try to paper this over in any particular way. So I, I doubt if I could ever have gotten anybody to say anything bad about Jack Benny, the most beloved man, most generous man, most helpful man, man who gave money to people who were down and out. And it was just everyone loved Jack Benny. He, he occupied the opposite end of the scale from, uh, well, I don't want to say his name, but... Um, his initials are Danny Kay. <laughs> well, you know, although uh, one of the pieces that you wrote for the Times, you talk about, and this is a, a Jack Benny. I can't figure, uh, I can't picture watching Benny. I think, I think you saw it, or maybe you heard about it. Watching Benny about to go out on stage on maybe with Carson or somebody, and yeah, taking it was, a uh, stiff it was drink either with Carson or Jack. It yeah. would have been in the same part of the floor of NBC there outside the studio. Yeah. And just taking a stiff drink. Oh, I'd for, almost forgotten it. Yeah, it was. I was standing there by the officer's phone outside studio, right, the cop sort of, and, and Jack was leaning against the Mr. Benny. I was leaning against the table there, and then he said to some guy whose name was also Don, like his announcer, "Oh, Don," <laughs> and Don went, "Oh yeah, right away, Mr. Benny," and went off and brought back about three inches of pure scotch in a tumbler with maybe an ice cube in it, I think I remember. And he downed it and went out onto the show, and I thought, Jack Benny, the most relaxed, calm, together person in the business, took a drink. I like the line that you... was George Goebbels' favorite yes. line when he did. You, you don't go out there alone, he said. I was just going to try to prompt you to do that one. You're you're one step ahead of me. Uh, oh, I'm way. sorry. No, no, no. That's all right. It's your punchline. You say it I'm when you so want to. I'm so impressed with your um, <laughs> what somebody would call research here, right. but I think it's me your memory. It's one or the other. So Dick Cavett is here. We've gotten way off track because I mean, yeah, there was something about Miss Hepburn as stagehand scholar, right? And and also, I my plan, my game plan had been mainly to talk about the pommel horse in Summer Olympics. Yeah, do you think I could ever have been there? I, I don't know. How good were you? I you... was very, very good, um, <laughs> as with Woody Allen, who people would be surprised at. He was a born athlete. Yeah. 
Woody plays plays an ectomorph, but is in fact a mesomorph. I mean, he's muscled and adept and a good boxer and a good... Anyway, I, I was a, a very, very good gymnast, and, um, you know, it helps to have the perfect body. And I was just really good on the horse. And I, and I won, here's a technical term, I think I won the gold medal yeah. uh, because of my triple rear dismount. Mm-hmm. A phrase that doesn't leap to everyone's ear or tongue. Or not in that context, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is something erotic about it, isn't there? Right. So that was in Nebraska. You were the gold medal champion uh, of the pommel horse. State champion, State yeah. State champion in Nebraska. And, of course, gymnastics in those days, any audience we had standing around, we always outnumbered. And then that one year in the Olympics was just before Mary Lou Retton, uh, Olga Corbett, I think it was. Gymnast, that team put gymnastics all over the world in flashing lights. Did anybody explain to you at any point what a pommel is? It's It doesn't really come up in any other context. It's the handle. It's the handle, okay. Yeah, so you did yeah. know that. Um, but, it, but it comes from a real horse, you know, the mm-hmm. pommel that you're not supposed to hold on to while you're riding, uh, that the rope can be around. Uh, that's So both horses have pommels. All right. See, I learned something. It's something I probably don't parade think. your knowledge. No, it though. sounds like something I probably actually should have known, but but I didn't. So there, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break while Mr. Cabot recovered recovers from his shock. We're going to be back with more conversation after the proverbial this. Oh, Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that men adore so, and a torso even more. So. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo, beside it the wreck of the Hesperus too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue, you can learn a lot from Lydia. When a robe isn't failed, she will show you the world. We were talking to Dick Cavett. We went out with Groucho. We should come back in with Groucho. I have to say that these clips, it's hard to do a clip of a Dick Cavett interview because, in fact, the joy of the interview is the long formness. Not that that's a word of it. But here's Groucho Marx on the Dick Cavett Show. It's the year is 1969. You know, you're one of the best and wittiest uh, conversationalists. <laughs> I always thought you, you were. Speaking of the, uh, I was just speaking of anything. I'm talking about an old, an old broad in the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm sure she's very rich. She told me too. Well, that puts it in a different light. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd get any of it. <laughs> I mean, of the money. Of the money. I knew that was an incomplete sentence, and I was. Um, I got that from a judge a few weeks ago. Really, an incomplete sentence? Yeah. Was there much? But he said, "Don't worry, you'll be back." May I ask a question? You know they. It's all right with me. I'm. 
All right, that's Dick Cavett and Groucho Marx. So you've had a lot of exposure to Groucho Marx. You wrote for him. You befriended him. He befriended you. You had him on the show. You made him look bad on the pommel horse, uh, <laughs> the relationship. And I've always felt as though there's sort of him and then there's everybody else, right? I think to those of us who just really admire him and, and think that there is him and then there's everybody else, it's hard to imagine knowing him. So, I, I yeah. Did, yeah, go ahead. Run with that. Well, that was the lucky part of it all. And it, it always seemed like something I ought to pinch myself for that uh, I got to such a good relationship with him, and he was on the show about uh, 10 times. That Groucho Marx, yes, Groucho Marx would come to New York and call me up and say, let's go to a play tonight or go to a movie or something. And I never really got jaded about that. It always was there. He knew my name. It took me a while to get used to by the way, I noticed an interesting thing there in that bit from Lydia. He says, Lydia, oh, Lydia. Mm-hmm. He adds the final New York sort of R, the one the Kennedys dropped right. at the end after a vowel. Oh, the first time he says Lydia in that short space. So it's Lydia, oh, Lydia. Um, interesting for speech people only and probably none of your listeners. No, we're, we're big with speech pathologists, actually. It's a huge part of our demographic. <laughs> You know, it was always fun to watch you with amusing disruptors. So we just heard you and Groucho just batting it back and forth. But, you know, he's obviously, he's Groucho, so he's uh, a couple of seconds ahead of everybody, including you. Uh, The other person that I used to love uh, watching you with was Zero Mostel. I think I remember him even picking you up and slinging you over his shoulder on at least one occasion. Gosh, that's startling. But you you can't imagine how much memory of those shows is lost to me. No, I can't actually. And it was lost to me then. <laughs> I mean, it, you have to flush the show away in order to do the next 15. And one night, Johnny Carson, when I was on with Johnny, who would have me on on the Monday after a, a particular Cabot show was canceled, <laughs> And would always say, this one better work or it's going to be Armed Forces Radio for Richard. <laughs> but we were great friends. And one night during a break, the band break after 1230, and Johnny had the band play extra loud so he wouldn't have to talk to the guests sitting there. <laughs> he said, uh, Richard, do you ever, um, and he kind of wiped his brow, do you ever forget who you had on? <laughs> and I said, well, sure, you know, there are so many after. No, no, I mean that night. <laughs> At that point in his life, he had a wife on the ledge and was drinking a lot and was worrying about himself. And I said, what happened? And he said, I went home and the doorman said, who'd you have on tonight, Mr. Carson? And I said, well, we had the usual four. We had, um, Jesus, we had, um, and I couldn't think of anybody. Well, I liked him so, and I wanted him to be happy. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, this will help. Mm-hmm. I said, I came home one night, and they said, how'd the show go? And I said, fine. And it was one of the one-person shows. And they said, who was it? And I said, it was, um, uh, oh, my <laughs> God, I sat right there. Um, it was some minutes, and that's a long time, mm-hmm. before I could come up with the admittedly obscure name Lucille Ball. <laughs> now, I had just sat for almost two hours with her. And that's when I realized you have to flush that show away and that the you who does the show is not the real you. And you're now the real you trying to think of the show you did.
and I wish the me that remembers were here to hear it. Well, also, you're when you're hosting something and, and interviewing something, uh, somebody, or moderating a conversation among three people, you, you may be the least attentive listener in some ways. You have to listen really carefully, and at the same time, you're splitting your mind off someplace else. That, uh, you you have perceived that perfectly, and I know that uh, the first week of being saddled with 90 minutes of airtime that you've never done before and all the distractions the audience sees two people chatting it looks easy <laughs> but i could see the person on the other side of the room who quickly lettered a sign to me and then took it down before i could read it <laughs> and i wonder if i'm supposed to go to commercial and i'm wondering if i've just said something that i wanted to say or if i haven't actually said it yet and you look at the guest, and the guest's lips have stopped moving. <laughs> and you think, what on earth were we talking about? <laughs> it's too, if, it was commercial, if you could go to commercial, I would, but sometimes you couldn't. I relied so much too heavily on my notes mm-hmm. that I would ask something, they would answer it, and then I would, instead of following up, go to the next thing and then go to the next thing with all these distractions that made me not actually hear what was being said. So that the effect was, I, I, I can almost claim I saw myself do this. So, Dick, we opened the old rusty trunk that we dug up, and uh, you'll never guess what we found inside. Do you have any hobbies? <laughs> it's reassuring to hear that Dick Caput has had this problem for all of us who have made all, all of this whole series of mistakes that you're describing are all very familiar to me. So there's anxiety and recognition in my laughter as well as genuine amusement. Well, and that's not where it ends because if you're foolish, you go home and watch it. Play <laughs> no, 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 never do that. Were you actually able to watch your own show? The pain of it is... Oh, the guest just said that. I hope I said I didn't. <laughs> oh, God, why did I say that instead of that was an old lady, that was my wife. You think it's something funny that would have worked, and you didn't say it. Yeah, although you kind of are the guy who set, who thought of it. I mean, that's what you're famous for, really. The, your history is, you know, includes 20 comebacks that, that everybody wishes they thought up on the spot. You actually did. There's the famous one with Norman Mailer. Uh, which and people forget that after you said fold it four ways and stick it where the sun don't shine, he said something like, did you think of that yourself? You said, I have to explain Tolstoy to you, which is yeah. a great little cap on top <laughs> of that. Well, do you mind if I correct you on the go, air? Go right ahead. Go, everybody else um, does. It's interesting that that line is virtually always remembered as you said it. Mm-hmm. And um, once I, I, a journalist said, is this the right wording? And I said, well, I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone remembers it that way. The way it was, why this crazy thing came into my head, I'll never know. But I heard myself say, so when he said, why don't you read the next question off the question sheet? And I said, why don't you fold it five ways and put it where the moon don't shine? And I maintain that stick it would be vulgar. But I don't know where it came from. Did I hear it once before in my life? Was it from Nebraska tribal memory of some kind? I I do not know. What is is it that Twain says about the difference between the right word and the wrong word? It's the difference between the fire and the firefly or something like that. Uh, It's Mark Twain. And I looked for it in his fabulous essay, the funniest (laughs) essay ever written and most educational, maybe, Mm -hmm. for writers. 
Fenimore Cooper's Literary right. Offenses. And it's online. Everyone should read it mm. at least once. I read it every couple of years at least. But in another essay, I think talking about Cooper and his ability to hit invariably the wrong word for something, I can assure you the right quote is, mm. the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. I, got, I had the wrong bugs. I feel yeah. very bad. I do remember Twain and the Fenimore Cooper thing. One of my favorite uh, Twain's, uh, Twain assessments of people was when he said Wagner, Wagner's music isn't as bad as it sounds. And with Fenimore Cooper, didn't he say that people who would really admire him should try to try reading him? He said that in effect, yeah. He's, he's, he cites at the beginning of it of four great scholars from Yale and elsewhere, commenting on the wa- fine writing of Fenimore Cooper. But one of them particularly, he says, let's say his name is Mr. Butler. Uh, it's hard to, it's surprising that he could say this about Mr. Butler's writing without obviously never having read any of it. <laughs> so, that isn't the exact wording, but that's the gist. That's a devastating essay, and you can learn a lot more about writing than you could at Trump University. (laughs) We are going to come to uh, that name at some point. I have some questions for you uh, about that. But, you know, I think the other thing that you did and you were comfortable with and somehow or other got a series of networks comfortable with that they are still not comfortable with otherwise is the idea of something very unplanned and borderline disastrous happening, happening. People walking off uh, sets, people showing up drunk, people, people doing things where probably an awful lot of other performers and producers would say, well, we just won't put that one on the air. You know, that's just, we can't have that. How did you ever persuade ABC at all to, to yeah yeah like yeah we're gonna put stuff like that on the air it's gonna look like the show completely fall up, fell apart it'll be the show everybody remembers. W- once that happened, it was a week long battle because I had done a show with uh, was it the Chicago Five, yeah. Abby Hoffman and company, and uh, they weren't going to air the whole show. Mm-hmm. And I somehow managed to let the word leak out to the press, and it did air reluctantly. The other bad one was when I got them the biggest rating at the time you could get by getting John and Yoko to come on. Mm-hmm. And they came back. Yeah. And when they came back, John had promised a song, and they selected Yoko's feminist composition, Woman is the Nigger of the World. And the audience loved it. And afterwards, a shaky-kneed ABC executive said, that's not going to, of course, be aired. And I said, just for fun, yes, it is. And <laughs> so he had to come back the next day. They came back with a proposal that I would say something ahead of it, since mm-hmm. I also had gotten quotes into the press that getting the Lennons was great and to censor them was not. So uh, the time came, and they said, all right, Dick, we've agreed that if you will... You will make a statement before the song, a kind of warning statement, you know. And I said, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, people will be offended. And I said, the only possible answer to that, which is so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agreed to that. The song played. And there were about 400 protests. None of them about the song, all of them, as one woman put it, 
about that mealy mouth statement you forced Dick to stick in before the show. How dumb and immature do you think we are? <laughs> I felt good about America that uh, nobody protested the song they were trembling about. Okay, it's it is time to ask the question. If if uh, if somebody proposed to you you to do ninety minutes with Donald Trump, uh, would you do it? Uh, and, and like a shot, yes. What do you want to know about him? I mean, one of the questions that's come up again and again, I'm sure you read Mark Singer's piece and some of these other pieces about him is, I mean, is there an interior life? Is there something that we can't see that that often was something that you would go after with an interviewee? What do you want to know about him? Well, that's an interesting way of bringing this subject up. I think I would want to know if he has been advised frequently to get psychiatric treatment or just now and then. (laughs) because of the number of people in that field who have laid out the number of symptoms of a kind of manic hysteria that's in him, where he can't control his speech, where he sticks on a word, stops and changes the subject instantly, and exhibits many other instances of signs of mental imbalance. So yeah, I don't know ahead. what he'd say to that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about him that you are not appalled by? I mean, do you find him intriguing at some level or just appalling? He's intriguing in the sense of an enigma and how, I don't know, what is the most about him that appalls me? It's the menstrual blood joke, Mm -hmm. the picking on a a gold star family, the imitating a man's palsy on camera, the misogyny, the serial lying, the no class exhibited by pocketing the nice man's purple heart instead of saying this is a great great honor and it belongs to you and handing it back mr cabot as pat paulson would say picky 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 <laughs> yeah picky indeed you're hearing an interview that we recorded with dick cabot earlier in 2016 i think it was one of those interviews that we occasionally do where the person who's giving us the interview initially thinks that maybe they're just going to talk to us for 15 minutes and I think Mr. Cavett and I probably could have talked for another two hours. So uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of it, which will come back right after this break. We're back. We're talking to Dick Cavett. I have to say some thank yous here. Uh, Jonathan McNichol has been the technical producer of the show. Betsy Kaplan is the person who put it all together uh, and has made me sound perhaps a little bit more smooth and knowledgeable than I deserve to sound. So, first of all, you you did interview Catherine Hepburn, who was a, was a notoriously difficult person to get to do an interview. Was there anything in particular that you said to her or some way that in which, in which you importuned her that, that made her do it? Or did you just have that kind of standing at that point? My earliest memory of how that came about was I was at a party, not to name drop, at Edward <laughs> Albee's place on <laughs> Long Island. And an interesting looking middle-aged or more woman came up and put her hands on my face and pushed all my features to the center of the face (laughs) and said, 
and I found this annoying. <laughs> and I said, and she said, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, Betty Crocker, <laughs> uh, the only name I could come up with. And she said, no, I'm Irene Mayer Selznick, and I'm Kate Hepburn's best friend, and I'm encouraging her to do your show. I heard that it, it's a possibility. And after several phone conversations with Miss Hepburn, as the stagehands always pronounce it, and I said to a stagehand, how is she? I haven't met her yet. And he said, ah, she's great, you know, Hepburn. She's regular. She'll say hello. How are you? <laughs> so uh, that's my imitation. Anyway, we talked, and at one point she said, well, of course, if we don't do it and we don't like it, we'll just burn the tapes, won't we? And I said, yeah, yeah. Greenbacks winging out the window in the thousands. And then, as is probably known, she agreed to come in and see the studio. No guest ever did that. I think we might actually have, I'm not sure if it's actually happening right at that moment, but we have a clip at least of her, it's, it's like the Vietnam uh, peace talks, she's talking I think about the table. And we have a table that John, nobody answers Can we get a business. table with, um, that doesn't wobble here? Sure. Right now? Like a, yeah, nail it down. Like a butterfly. Nail it uh, down. Mickey. What if you want to get up and dance? What? You may want to get up and move and move the table aside. The table aside. No, I wouldn't move, You'd never the table want to move the table aside. I want to put my feet on it. Yeah, it's a hell of a good idea. You know, this is, haven't you got something we can put our feet on? Some. Switch the other one. Okay. This, this is a little solider. Move it out. Move it out. Put this out here. I have a card. I've been in the business so long. I don't want any complaints from the unions. Is that one wrong? I'm an honorary member. That's right, you are. Uh, yeah, this is heavier. That's better and better for feet, I think. Is this all yours? Yeah, well, that, I, I just wanted to show you. This is what it would look like sitting there. Yes, that's better. That's all right. That's great. Yeah. We should have thought of this before. Where were you when I needed you? So I know of your great dislike for overworked phrases in contemporary parlance, but uh, the phrase high maintenance does come up here, I think, uh, listening to <laughs> <laughs> Yes. You know, that was one of my smartest and dumbest ideas. She still had not agreed to do the show. She was just in to look over the premises. And we were going to do it two days later, and so that's why I'm dressed the way I am. Uh, and it's uh, the I, the thing is though that I suggested it, taking a big chance, but thinking well she doesn't know television at all. She won't know what the red lights on the camera mean. But she probably isn't going to do the show. Seems to be where the wind is blowing. So let's have a souvenir of her coming in. <laughs> and they taped it. And then I felt I had to tell her. Mm -hmm. And then I felt I'd hear well goodbye forever, Mr. Cabot. And what she said was. I'll have someone come in and look at it. It may not be a bad idea. And someone came in and looked at it. And it was reported to me that that someone had a bush jacket and slacks and familiar-looking sandals and a babushka around her head that concealed just about all but her eyes. And, of course, we'll never know who it was. <laughs> no, could have been one of the sisters. She had three, I think. Yeah, it could have been. Anyway, she said she would do it, and, uh, and, and as we know, spectacularly did. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite moment of it is the one where I told her, you don't remember me, do you? In effect, we were in a play together at Stratford. She said, well, I'm told I should remember. What was it? And I told her. And I told her I had one line in The Merchant of Venice. 
you remember it? I said, gentlemen, my master Antonio is at his house and desires to speak with you both. And the familiar voice said, is that how you said it? <laughs> <laughs> and then she looked all apologetic at the huge laugh. <laughs> well, we, we almost have to go here. Right? I'm crestfallen that we are oh, I'm sorry. out of time. No, like I'm, we only got together. That's, that's how I feel, too. Well, I could just do a Richard Burton thing and get, squeeze another half an hour out of you, but I'm not going to do that to you. Well, um, listen, uh, I'll, I'll do something that's one of the nastiest things you can do uh, to a guest or just about anybody. And I learned it from Walter Matthau. <laughs> Suppose I disliked you throughout this, but pretended I didn't. Mm -hmm. And just at this point, I would say, well, thank you, uh, Colin, mm -hmm. is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing you could do is, is say, in the words of Groucho, I've had a wonderful time. Unfortunately, this wasn't it. Yeah. <laughs> But it's been great to talk to you. We, I know, we do encourage people, by the way, to just go on Amazon and type in Dick Cavett, and you're going to get DVDs and books, and I think they're steaks. They're much nicer than the Trump steaks. They're chewed more thoughtfully. I should think, yeah. <laughs> the Cavett and, steaks. And the fact that the shows are on decades is so strange because, again, it's made me realize how much I forgot. Somebody saw me with Jimmy Hoffa the other night, and I remembered. Do you have a minute? Yeah, well, what we, for you, of course we've got a minute. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll play the ending music over again. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, my Jimmy Hoffa show caused a lot of uh, unhappiness from people who thought, why are you putting this swine on the air? You know, And uh, I said, uh, you know, it was interesting. And then I found later that the one place it really didn't go over, well, let me put it another way. I was at a party at 21 after the Hoffa show, a week or two after, and every face had been on Time or Newsweek's cover. Everybody. There was Mike Waltz. There was Walter Cronkite. There was a premier of France. There was Gina Lola Bridget. Every face was known to everyone, except the one that came at me out of the crowd with beady lies and said, a woman, who gives you the right? And I said, I'm sorry? Who gives you the right? She was a little stewed. Um, that was evident. And I, I finally figured out she was talking about Hoffa, and it was Ethel Kennedy. Wow. And she really berated me. It kind of drew a crowd, and I didn't know what to say. And finally I just said, well, Mrs. Kennedy, I, you know, I, I like to have all kinds of guests on, and uh, I think I should assure you that I don't necessarily decide whether or not to have a guest on by thinking how it's going to go over at Hyannisport. <laughs> well, that did it. Mm -hmm. Something hit the fan audibly, and a couple of people had to pull her back. Oh, dear. But behind her, Walter Cronkite was giving the bravo signal with both <laughs> hands clasped and raised in the air. <laughs> well, that's, you know, Walter Cronkite is a court beyond which there is no appeal. So you, you yeah, won that yeah. round. Um, I like that. I met her about three months later, and uh, she had no memory of it. So, <laughs> Well, we, we, I, I, look, I could talk for another hour, but I don't think it's the best use of your time. So we are going to just thank Dick Cavett profusely. We're going to go out with something that may not be available on Amazon, but then again it may, and that's Dick Cavett and Ray Charles singing. Oh, oh. Yeah.
yes, yes. Singing Am I Blue. Am I blue? I got your key now. Am I blue? <laughs> in these tears, in these eyes. Oh, oh you cheated. You're not nice. I think that's good. Could you tell? Listen, it was so great talking to you, sir. Don't be a stranger. Oh, you, uh, you made this very, very painless, uh, Colin, is it? It's, it is Colin, yes. <laughs> uh, Thank you. 